Uh, before we turn to John chapter 6, that's what I've been preaching through, um, I'd just like to say how much I am personally um, enjoying preaching through John's gospel and how I'm personally benefiting from it, and I hope and pray that you are too. Um, John's gospel, if you haven't noticed, is a very unique gospel, uh, especially compared to the synoptic gospels. When I say synoptic, I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar gospels, but John... John's gospel is very different. I like to call his gospel the black sheep of the gospels because his gospel is just that different. Um, it, one of the things that John does is he centers half of his gospel around seven signs, which we looked at five of them already. And the fourth sign, the feeding of the multitude out of the five loaves of bread and two small fish, provoked this bread of life discourse, which we're going to look at tonight, Jesus made his famous saying, I am the bread of life. And the purpose, first of all, of the signs, going back to the signs, the purpose of the signs, or miracles, were to reveal who Jesus was, that he was God in human flesh. That's why John centered his gospel around these signs. Also you will see in John's gospel are seven emphatic I am statements which identify Jesus as God and Messiah. And today we will read the first of the seven I am's. I am the bread of life. Now, it's funny that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means house of bread. So bread in ancient times was a staple of the human diet. I mean, it was just a necessity of life. And I believe in this context, it represents food necessary to survive. And without it, a person would die, obviously. You must eat physically in order to live. And spiritually is the same. You must have spiritual bread or spiritual food in order to live forever. And that bread, of course, is Christ. And I love the story of the husband whose wife asked him to stop by the store to buy bread. He went to the store and was distracted by the milk, Oreo cookies, barbecue potato chips, and ice cream. And when they went home, his, his wife looked at the purchase, purchases and said, where's the bread? So he went back to the store. He forgot the one essential product, the bread. And, and some of you husbands can absolutely relate to that. It's like the wife who gives a shopping list to a husband, and then he comes back with one carton of eggs, two sacks of flour, three boxes of cake mix, four sacks of sugar, and five cans of cake frosting. And his wife says, I never should have numbered the list. <laughs> I would do something like that. I can relate to that. And we might make the same mistake in a more critical arena. In our effort to do good, we can be distracted, and many of us know that. We could, feed the, we could feed people, we can encourage, we serve, we address radical issues and poverty, but we forget the bread, we forget Jesus Christ. Let's read our text tonight. John 6, verses 30 through 51. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the, on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him on the last day. 
So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate ma the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes from heaven. Comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you that you gave your Son the bread of life. That whoever looks to him, whoever believes on him, whoever trusts him, will live forever. Because he alone is our spiritual food. Father, we ask you to open up our hearts and minds tonight. That we might receive the word of God. And that it might change us to be more like Christ. In Christ's precious name we pray. So, I want to present to you tonight a question. Or a ra rather a statement. If you know Christ today, the bread of life. It's not because you chose him. But rather it was the Father's will for you to know his son. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. But we need to review it. Because I spoke on this twice already. On, at least on part of chapter 6. And we need to back up a little. And give you a synopsis of chapter 6. Where we ended, uh, the last time I spoke, we ended at verse 29. Well, anyway, Jesus was ministering around Judea and Jerusalem. And then he went to Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And there in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, we read, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 men, which really translates into fifteen to 20,000 people. That's a lot of people to feed out of five loaves, which was small loaves, maybe the size of pita bread today, and, five, and two small fish, which a little herring. When the crowd saw this amazing miracle, they exclaimed in verse 14, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And they were ready to force Jesus to be their king. But sadly, they really missed the point. Instead of repenting of their sin and crying out for mercy and grace, they wanted to make him a, a messiah of their own liking. They thought they had a messiah who would meet all their needs and wants and free them from Roman oppression. That's what they thought about Jesus when they saw this great miracle. They didn't see him as one who would give eternal life. They saw him as one who would give, him, who would give them a handout. They missed the point, as many do today. Yes, Jesus was and is concerned about our physical needs, but that's not why he came to earth. He came to meet the spiritual needs of every human being. He didn't come to meet to get us better jobs. He didn't come to heal our marriages. He didn't come to heal our bodies. He came to give us eternal life. And in the interim, sometimes he does do these great things in our lives. And he is concerned about, about our physical and our emotional needs. But primarily he came, as Luke says, to seek and save the lost. Then knowing the crowd was trying to force him to be king, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the lake. And once again, I'm giving a synopsis of the last two times I spoke. Jesus sent his disciples right into this powerful squall, a powerful storm, purposely, purposely did that. What, was it that he didn't care about his disciples? No, of course not. He was actually rescuing them. Rescuing them from what? He was rescuing them from the crowd, from getting swept up with the crowd because they missed the whole point of what Jesus was talking about. The whole point of the feeding of the 5,000. And he chose these 12. And he was calling them away from the crowd. 
But also he was going to teach them some powerful lessons to trust Christ even more. So the disciples get into the boat, start heading to the other side, only to be met by this powerful storm. And fear and horror grips their hearts, especially when they see Jesus walking on the water and they think it's a ghost. Jesus reveals to them who he is and they take him into the boat and the storm immediately subsides and immediately they reach the other side. And Needless to say, the disciples learned some great lessons that night. So now they reach the other side, the crowd realizing Jesus was not there. They also get into the boat and go to the other side, which is Capernaum, seeking Jesus. But Jesus tells them in verse 26 through 29, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And this is where we left off, and this is where we'll pick up at this point. First thing we see in this text that I read previously, verses 30 to 51, is Jesus is misunderstood. Do you misunderstand Jesus' purpose for your life? Most of the crowd of the Jews at that time, they misunderstood. They wanted bread all right, but it was only temporary bread. They wanted bread that would just fill their physical bellies. That's all they could think about. Verse 30 and 31 again. Let's get to verse 30 and 31 again. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. What were they doing here? Here's what they, what they were doing. They were reflecting on the wilderness experience when God, through Moses, provided 40 years of manna. 40 years of manna. That's how long they were in the wilderness. A, 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 a journey that should have probably taken taken. Maybe 11 days, it took them 40 years because of their grumbling and their constant complaining. Sounds like my job, when I'm on my job, the people, are, people are constantly grumbling and, and you can all identify this, with this. And some of us are grumblers and complainers. All we do is grumble and complain. <laughs> but in essence, they were saying, Jesus, outdo Moses. Outdo Moses. Show us your credentials. If you're greater than Moses, prove it. Give us a sign. John Calvin observed, this wicked question clearly shows the truth of what is said elsewhere. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. And of course he was quoting Matthew 12, 39. In 1 Corinthians 1, this is what the Jews needed. It says, Paul told the Corinthian church, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seeks, seeks wisdom. Rather than worshiping Jesus as Messiah because they just experienced a great miracle of feeding of 5,000, they expected more spectacular signs than Moses provided. That wasn't enough. That was not enough. People today always are seeking something miraculous. I like the story in Luke when the rich man went to hell and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. And he said, send someone to warn my brothers. Send someone, send Lazarus back from the dead. And, and Abraham said, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the very word of God. If they're not believing Moses and the prophets, if they're not believing the word of God, you think they're going to believe if someone rises from the dead? However, Jesus is not going to gratify their material wants. He wants to correct their misunderstanding from temporary bread to the true bread given by the Father from heaven. Verses 32 and 33. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, God provided manna through Moses, but it was not the true bread from heaven. 
just as the law of Moses, the Torah, that's the law of Moses, which some Jewish authorities believe was figurative of bread. And that was not the true Torah. However, they both pointed in the right direction. They were both good. Manna, God provided the temporary needs. The law, it was good, but it didn't save anyone. Manna perished with time as the people awaited. The law of Moses, as important and true as it would be, would be replaced by that to which it pointed, that which was fulfilled. The true bread from heaven and the true Torah is Christ himself. He fulfilled the law. He's the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is a person. And that's the point he was trying to get to these Jews that totally missed the point. But the crowd is still spiritually unresponsive. They still misunderstood bread. Verse 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They still misunderstood. They were still thinking physical bread. Jesus offered living water, if you remember, to the woman at the well. And her response was the same. Sir, give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well day after day. They were so spiritually dull that Jesus now speaks plainly to, them, plainly to them in verses 35 and 36. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. This is the first of seven I am statements in John's Gospel where I am is joined with metaphors which expresses Christ's work as Savior. Besides saying I am the bread of life, the other six were I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, I am the true vine. And he also used something very interesting. In the Greek, I am is ego aimi. It's a Greek term, and it was also used in the Old Testament in Hebrew. In Exodus 3.14, when Moses said, Lord, who shall I tell Israel who sent me? And he said, you tell them this, I am who I am sent you. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am God. I am God, the bread of life. But he's also saying this. He's also saying, I am your life. I am your sustenance. I am your source. I am bread from heaven. I'm not the physical bread. I'm the spiritual bread. And when you come, you come to Jesus, you believe in Jesus, the bread of life, and something amazing happens to you. Your spiritual hunger and thirst are satisfied. See, physical food only satisfies temporarily. You know, a lot of times I'll go out to eat with my wife and we'll go to lunch and I'll be in a, we'll be in a diner, I'll be eating, and I'll say, what are we going to eat for dinner? <laughs> John, we didn't even finish lunch. We're still eating lunch. <laughs> but you know, all right, we're on to the next thing already. When we eat physical food, what happens? It lasts maybe four, five, six hours, and then we're hungry again. When the, when the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, Jehovah God gave them manna every single morning. Because physically, he knew they needed that. But Christ satisfies the emptiness, the longing in our hearts, the restlessness. So he is our spiritual sustenance. And what I hunger for is Jesus himself. This doesn't mean hunger and thirst in our souls doesn't rise up every day. Yes, it does. It means now we know what we eat and drink. We drink down Jesus. We eat Jesus. We fill our hearts every day with Christ. When we first came to Christ, what happened? The initial hunger and thirst is satisfied and quenched. However, every day we feed upon Christ and His Word. We drink Christ and His Word every day. And sometimes, many times, I talk to Christians who are struggling, and one of the first things I ask them is, are you into the Word every day? They're not feeding up, when you're not feeding upon Christ, you're not getting that spiritual nourishment you need. None of us would dare to think that we're going to go weeks without eating food, or even days, or even one day. We wouldn't dare. But yet, 
We go time after time without feeding upon Christ, feeding upon His Word, letting God renew our mind and our hearts. Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness and fasted 40 days, and Satan came and tested him with the physical bread, but Jesus resisted and quoted Deuteronomy 8, 3, said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Christ will satisfy your spiritual hunger and your spiritual thirst, but hard-heartedness will continue your hunger and, and thirst. Let's read verses 36, or verse 36. No, verse 36, please. <clears throat> but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You see, the crowd has been exposed to Christ. They heard him teach. They saw his miracles. Many of them witnessed uh, Jesus creating food from the five loaves and two fish. However, they still not, did not believe. Why? Why? They lacked the ability. They lacked the ability. They, like all of humanity, were dead in trespasses and sins. There was no spiritual life in them. They couldn't believe in Jesus. They lacked the ability. They were dead. And dead people cannot respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dr. D.A. Carson says, The crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused. <laughs> not their faith. Once again, they lacked the ability. Was then Jesus' mission a failure? Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and all are lost, but not all are saved. So was he a failure? Was there a failure of God sending his son to give eternal life? No, not at all. God did not fail. Christ did not fail. Just because people do not believe does not mean God God's saving purpose failed. Verse 37. Let's go to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that makes it plain and simple. In spite of man's lost condition, in spite of the crowd's response, in spite of their unwillingness to come to him, in spite of, of all that, Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission was in one thing and one thing only, in the sovereignty of God his Father. God is sovereign in the choice of people for salvation. Verse 37 again, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This has been and, continuous, and continues to be a controversy within the evangelical church. Within... Christianity. Without going into all the nuances of this controversy, the church today for the most part is divided concerning who chooses salvation. And through the centuries, there was the theological systems called Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and today it's really called Arminianism. These theological systems make salvation dependent on man's will. In effect, they really dethrone God, even though it may not be intentional and it's really contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. And what we are here at Sonship, we are reformed in our theology. And this teaching, we believe, dates back to really Genesis. Some say it goes back to the Apostles, but I believe it goes back to Genesis. One of the doctrines reformed theology teaches is the doctrine of grace. The doctrines of grace, I should say. Without going into all that, I just want to say that the doctrines of grace, which some of you may know by the acronym TULIP, total depravity, um, unconditional election, limited or particular atonement, um, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, that teaches that God is sovereign in salvation. It is God who chooses people for salvation, not by man's will. Man, by nature, is dead in trespasses and sin and cannot respond. Man would never choose God because he is dead in trespasses and sins, as I said, and is unresponsive to God's glorious gospel. When Paul the Apostle wrote his letter to the Roman church to teach them the great truths of the gospel of grace, he told them 
in chapter 3, verses 11, or verse 11, no one understands God, no one seeks God. Simply put, man is unable to save himself, but also he's unable to respond to the gospel unless the spirit changes his corrupt heart. Let's skip down to verses 41 through 46. And this is very controversial in the church. Most of the Christian church today is Arminian. They believe that, well, I choose God. But if you search the scriptures carefully and you, and you really look at the whole picture, you'll see it's really God that chooses us and we don't choose Him. You see that throughout the scripture. And what happened, I know, the, I know why people get tripped up because I, I was Arminian at one time. Christian, and these are our brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this, this is a deal breaker when it comes to salvation, but a lot of times they'll see scriptures like whoever, whosoever, whosoever, and we'll talk about that later. It talks about man's responsibility. Just because God is sovereign in salvation does not mean that man is not responsible. We'll talk about that in a little while, but let's skip down to verse 41 through 46. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent them draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. So, in a nutshell, the Jews grumble. The Jews are grumbling. Jesus tells them, stop. Stop grumbling. Because no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And those who come, who are instructed by God, they will all be taught by God, who are instructed by God through the Son, will come to the Father, uh, to the Son. You see, when he talks about drawing, and he talks about uh, they will all be taught by God. They're just different aspects of God's sovereign or effectual call to salvation. There's two calls in salvation. When the gospel goes out, there's a general call. That's everybody hears. But there's an effectual call when God is calling people to salvation. That only goes to the people who God is choosing for salvation. I know it's a hard doctrine to swallow. But that'll crush every last bit of pride in the human heart Amen. is that God is truly <coughs> sovereign in salvation. Every aspect of it. You would not choose him. And we'll talk about that again when we talk about the responsibility of man. Why were the Jews grumbling? Because unbelief kept them from understanding. Have you ever noticed when you share the gospel with some hard-hearted unbeliever, many times they respond with complaining Oh, the preacher, these preachers, they're all alike. They all do it for the money. Or they say something about the Bible. How do you know the Bible is true? Man, where are the Bible? And, you know, complain, complain, complain. And all, all their arguments and complaints are founded on fluff. And these Jews complain just like their ancestors complained and grumbled against God in the Old Testament. Let's look at Exodus. Let's go take a uh, walk back into the history of the Bible. Exodus, 16, chap, uh, Exodus chapter 16, verse 2 and verses 8 and 9. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And Moses said, verses 8 and 9, And Moses said, When the Lord gives you an evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Things haven't changed. Things haven't changed. They grumbled from the time of Moses in the Old Testament. They grumbled with Jesus, and they're grumbling today. Men's hearts need to change, and that is only by the work of God's Holy Spirit. 
So the Jews complained because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. What? You came down from heaven? This man is a Galilean whose mother and father we know. How could you say you came down from heaven? Did you not just see Jesus feed fifteen to 20,000 people? Did you not see him raise the dead? Did you not see him uh, heal the paralytic? Did you not see him t- turn the water into wine? Did you not see all these miracles? Do you think he's just a man from Galilee? So the Savior tells them, do not grumble among yourselves. And here it is again. But this time, emphasizing man's helplessness and utter inability to respond to Christ apart from God's sovereign call. Let's read verse 44 again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, in verse 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not some, all will come. And in verse 44, he says, no one can come to me. This emphasizes inability. Because all human beings are infected with a moral inability as a result of the fall. This doesn't mean no one will ever come. Listen to the rest of 44. No one can come to me. That's inability unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word unless indicates something must take place before the desired result can happen. What's the desired result? To come to Jesus. What must take place? The Father who sent draws. So no one can come to to the Son unless the Father draws. Now, we need to talk about this word draw. Because the Father who sent um, Jesus will draw the people to himself. And the Greek, the Greek word for draw is helkuo, and it means to pull in, to lead by force, to attract, to drag, to pull in. Now some of the, the translators have softened the word to mean to woe or to entice or to persuade, but the Greek word is much stronger there. Listen to the same Greek word used in Acts 21.30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him, that's the same word, Elkuo, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So I don't think the angry Jews were saying they were wooing Paul to come. Come on, Paul. (laughs) They weren't wooing him, they were dragging him. So it's not no one can come to me unless the Father woos them to me. He draws us, he pulls us in, he hauls us in. We are so corrupt and our hearts are so hard against the things of God that we can't respond to God on our own. He must bring us to His Son. Remember, it does not mean the Father is drawing everyone and then some decide to come to Jesus. That's what the Arminians say. And God bless our Arminian brothers and sisters, but I really strongly disagree with them. And once again, I was an Arminian. It's like, stop took a good look and read and said, yes, the Father is sovereign in salvation. So it doesn't mean the Father is drawing everyone and then some come to Jesus. No, but everyone the Father draws will actually come. Listen and consider these passages of Scripture which confirm and clarify this understanding that God draws and chooses who come to His Son. Remember, this is not an exhaustive teaching or preaching. This is only, I'm just scratching the surface. There's much more to go into this, but I'm just trying to give you the text. John 6, verse 63 to 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. For some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now look at the connection between verses 64 and 65. There are some of you who do not believe, right? That's verse 64. And then he says in verse 65, this is why or on account of that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
In other words, because they don't believe, because their hearts are hard, it is impossible for them to come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And what happens to those whom the Father draws to the Son? Three things happen, which is actually the Father's will. Verse 37, the second half of verse 37. All who come to Jesus, Jesus will never reject. He will never cast out. Okay? Anyone that comes to Christ, he will never, ever reject. But also, there's something more to that. But also, Jesus will keep that person saved. He will not reject them midway and say, you sinned, so let's get rid of you now. (laughs) He will take you all the way to the end. This this is called the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which is a message or two or three in itself. Because Jesus came to do the Father's will, all that the Father gives Jesus, the second thing is Jesus will lose none. Okay? Verse 39, he says he will lose none. This guarantees the salvation of the elect. This is their eternal security. Okay, that's the second thing. So, so Jesus will never reject anyone. Jesus will never lose anyone. And because Jesus does not reject anyone who comes to him, because he loses no one who comes to him, the third thing which happens, which is also the Father's will, is when the Father draws someone, he raises them up on the last day. He says it three times in verse 39. He raises them up on the last day. In verse 40, he raises them up on the last day. In verse 44, he raises them up on the last day. Point A, people come to Jesus through the Father's drawing. Point B, he raises them up on the last day. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. And there's no break in between. That's how secure you and I are in our salvation. Now, when I was of the Arminian belief, what it did, and this, this is what it did, it only brought confusion to me, and it brought insecurity to me. I, I, you know, you didn't know if one day you lost your salvation. You know, listen, I don't care who you are, we slip and fall at times. I'm not saying we continue in habitual practicing sin, I'm saying we slip and fall at times. Yes, we're being progressively free from sin through our sanctification, but... We do slip and fall. And when I was a new Christian, I was a young baby Christian, very vulnerable, very impressionable. I thought I, I was up at the altar every five minutes. I mean, every five minutes, I'd be up there. There's John Verdi again. He, he lost his salvation again. Something must have happened in terms of Anyway. Okay, there's a few more scriptures. Okay, we got time. Thank God. I'm just going to read a few scriptures just as cross-references. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in this truth. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were, listen to this, this is important. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It doesn't say, and those who believed were appointed to eternal life. No. It says those who were appointed to eternal life believed. And Ephesians Ephesians 1.4 Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And the last scripture, Romans 8.28-30, which most of us are familiar. And we know that those who love God or all, all things work together for good, for those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren or brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And, though, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those 
Whom he justified, he also glorified. Now I want you to look at this. Look at the very last word, glorified. That's past tense. Are we glorified yet? What was Paul saying? It's a done deal. Even though we're not glorified yet, it's a done deal. In God's mind, if you're truly a Christian, you're going to be glorified. It's done. So God is sovereign in salvation. However, but man is responsible. How do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? You can't. The Bible teaches both, but you can't reconcile it. Let's talk about man's responsibility. Let's read verses 40 and then 47. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. In verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, sovereign election in salvation, meaning God chooses His church, He chooses the believer, and gives the believer eternal security and perseverance is never, ever apart from personal repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Although God is sovereign, He works through faith. So you must believe in Jesus as the way of salvation. However, there's an however in here. Even faith is a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, what's that? Grace through faith. And that, not of yourself. Not of yourself. It's a gift of God. In other words, man is dead in his trespasses and sins. God does a regenerating, a regenerating work in the heart of the dead sinner by his Holy Spirit. Man is now awakened by the Holy Spirit to his sin and to God's holiness and is now aware he needs a Savior. He cries out to God through repentance and faith. That's his responsibility. So anyone that goes to hell is responsible. No one ever will point the finger at God in hell. No one will ever say, you didn't give me a chance. God will say, you're responsible. And he'll show them how they're responsible. But yet, God is sovereign in salvation. He chooses. He elects. He predestines. Now how does God do, the Father do all this? Through His Son, Jesus Christ, the bread of life. He is our source. Let's read um, verses 48 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that, come down, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is your source of eternal life. Jesus is your sustenance for life. Just as the Israelites ate manna in the desert and guess what? They still die. Anyone who does not eat Christ, meaning who does not believe Him, does not trust Him, will complete, will, if you don't trust Him completely, you will die eternally. But even though it's the Father who draws us to the Son, there's an implicit invitation to believe and a warning for unbelief. If you look closely at the text, you will see words like, come, used five times, believed, used three times, and, and looks, used one time. These words are invitation to Christ to eat and live. Jesus is calling sinners to repentance and to put their trust in Him. If you put your trust in Christ, if you truly believed in Him, if you truly said, Lord, save me, if you truly repented from sin and turned to Christ, if you deeply, deeply desire Christ, that was the sovereign work of God in your heart. He made you willing. See, that's where people get tripped up. He made you willing. You'll never be able to say to God, I chose you, God. No, you'll never be able to say that. And Patty read the scripture today. No one will boast before the Lord. No one. This is what Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied in the Old Testament concerning the New Covenant. Israel failed miserably 
under the old covenant. And God through Jeremiah and Ezekiel said, there's going to come a new covenant. Listen to both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, listen, this is God speaking. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then Ezekiel, elaborating on the new covenant. Chapter 36, verse 30, uh, verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you, listen once again, God saying this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and, listen to this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. It doesn't sound like man, it sounds like God doing all this. Unlike the old covenant, the new covenant cannot be broken because of God's grace which comes to us by Christ's death and resurrection. That was done once and for all and that will never ever be broken. And when you understand God's sovereign undeserved grace, it has an effect on your life. It has a great effect on your life. Dr. John Piper gives us five effects of this sovereign undeserved grace. Number one, it humbles you. If it wasn't for his drawing, you would be utterly lost. God have mercy on you if you are not humble because of this truth. Number two, it fills you with thanksgiving. It's a gift. James 1.7 said that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, from above. Number three, it gives you assurance. If it is God who draws you freely, then he will keep those whom he called. He justifies and those whom he justified, he, he what? He glorifies. And number four, from this you get hope for the conversion of the people you love who seem utterly beyond hope. No matter how hopeless a loved one seems, when God calls the dead, they rise. Finally, all the glory goes to God, not you. This is why God saved the way he does, because all the glory belongs to him. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let's conclude with this. Now I can only imagine how many of you might be thinking, well how do I know if I'm the elect? How do I know if, I'm, if God has chosen me? Let's read for the last time John 6.35 again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you came to Jesus like this, the Father has given you to his Son and will keep you and you will be raised up on the last day. Amen. If you reject Christ, you are responsible. Anyone who goes to hell is because they deserve to go to hell. We, the Christians, are getting what we don't deserve. Let me put it this way to you. Mankind is born and on its way to hell because of sin, right? And through the fall, original sin, we call it. God chooses some. His own purpose, his own will, he, 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 he chose a bride for his son to call the church. And people that miss out on heaven, that go to hell, they are still responsible. They're getting what they deserve. We're getting what we don't deserve. It's a hard, it's not hard. It's you accept what the Word of God says. Yeah. And I always say, I'm never afraid of people challenging me. Because I want to see if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong with something, come and challenge me, but come with the Scriptures, please. See, a lot of the arguments that I've seen, the Arminians, when they argue with people, when they argue with the Calvinists or the Reformers, I don't like to say Calvinists because then you stereotype, but the Reformers, 
A lot of scripture is missing. You need to take the word of God and dissect it. That's how you come. How do you come to a conclusion on any doctrine? You come to a conclusion on a doctrine by taking what the doctrine says from Genesis to Revelation. You put it all together and then you can see what it clearly says. And that's not what a lot of people do. Anyway, we're getting what we don't deserve. And you can and should not take credit for choosing God. Yes, God draws sinners. We know that. He draws sinners to himself. He chooses. But he's also calling sinners to repentance. Do you hear him tonight? I don't know if everyone knows him here tonight. I don't know. Only God knows that. But he calls. He invites just because we talk about election, because we talk about God's drawing, God is consistently given an invitation. Now, listen to Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. He said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what which is not bread? And you'll labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. God is calling. I hope you're hearing him. And if you're a Christian, if you heard the call of God, you realize that he was the one who brought you to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And if you do realize that, praise Him, thank Him, obey Him, out of His great gratitude for His amazing, amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are our salvation. Salvation belongs to You. No man chooses You. You choose man. But yet You invite, You call, You beckon people to come. Thank you, God, for calling me 35 years ago and saving my wretched soul when I wasn't looking for you. But you found me. You picked me up and washed me and set me on the rock, and that rock is Christ. And he's my bread of life. He's my sustenance. He's my source. He's my everything. He's my whole life. And I thank you for that. And I pray, God, if anybody doesn't know you here tonight, that they come to know the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And I also pray, God, for Christians that know you, that they give all the glory, honor, worship, and praise for their salvation to you and to you alone. That you chose them and they did not choose you. We thank you, Father, for your sovereign work of salvation.